thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. This is Up For A Chat with Cindy O'Mara, Karen Smith, and Kim Morrison. Hello, this is Cindy O'Meara and welcome. The purpose of this webinar series is to educate and to give you more information in order to empower you to take responsibility for you and your family's health. Tonight I have Dr. Bruce Lipton on the line. Dr. Lipton is a PhD, is a pioneer in the new biology. He is an internationally recognized leader in bringing science and spirit together. A cell biologist by training, Bruce was on the faculty of the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and later performed groundbreaking stem cell research at Stanford University. He is the best-selling author of The Biology of Belief, Spontaneous Evolution, and his latest book, The Honeymoon Effect. Since 1966, Dr. Lipton has held numerous academic positions, I counted 16, 10 teaching positions, and at present he is teaching immunology at New Zealand College of Chiropractic, he has been presented with awards including the Goya Peace Award. He has 20 published research papers oh, and so much more. You know what? It, it, I'd be here all day talking about all Bruce's achievements and that's not what we're going to be talking about. We just want to talk to Bruce and um, pick his brain and learn everything we can in, in the hour that we have with him. So um, welcome, Bruce. And I, I so appreciate this opportunity and I very much appreciate uh, all the listeners out there because uh, from from what we do, Cindy, uh, they represent cultural creatives, the, the people that are looking for the new understanding to really move forward in this life, stepping outside of the box and finding the, uh, a new pathway. And so I'm greatly appreciative of all of you out there because uh, this is the leading edge of uh, uh, an evolution that humanity is facing right now uh new beliefs new beliefs about self a new knowledge you know uh city the knowledge is power uh and what we uh hopefully will be talking about tonight is knowledge of self how we work which by definition is self empowerment so uh uh let's go let's have some fun with it all right well i've heard you talk about vitalism and mechanism like i have to tell you bruce i i follow you around the world i've been to virginia to hear you speak new zealand to hear you speak Brisbane, I've just been down to the Uplift Festival. So, um, look, I've, I've listened to you speak. I, I hear you in my, um, you know, I have my iPod in my ears. And so you talk about vitalism and mechanism, and I'd really like the listeners to understand the difference between vitalism and mechanism and a brief history of the polarization um, of, these two, of these two philosophies. Absolutely, a very important point because this is the issue facing modern medicine right now, which is uh, coming from a history of mechanism and moving into what we're going to talk about as vitalism. And basically, it starts off like this: uh, uh, in the early 1700s, uh, the church was really um, the, the truth provider of the world in which we live, and, and it was like the source of knowledge. We want to know anything. We went to the church, and uh, and the issue about the church was they had something called infallible knowledge, which meant that any knowledge they had was direct from God, and it was always true. And, and there's a problem if you claim that, is that if somebody comes up with a, a, a different understanding, uh, the whole uh, infallible knowledge thing falls apart. So uh, the church, being very smart, 
created something called the Inquisition, which when people came up with a, a different perspective that challenged the church's truth, um, they went to the Inquisition, which really meant uh, 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 kangaroo court, <laughs> in that uh, you were already guilty and there was no way that you were going to get out of this. Nobody got out of the Inquisition court alive, essentially. And, and so the whole idea is this. The church had a whole story about the universe and God and invisible spirit and invisible energies as the source of life and the source of control on this planet. And uh, science was looking at the nature of nature. And one of the premier scientists of the day was um, uh, 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 <laughs> uh, the physics, <laughs> Isaac Newton. My goodness, my neuron just uh, had a disconnect there with Isaac. But uh, uh, Isaac Newton... Uh, and what was interesting is Isaac Newton was uh, spinning off of an idea from Rene Descartes. Rene Descartes was a guy who was looking up at the heavens and started to realize, you know, like the universe was like a clock that you can tell time by it. And the reason why that was so striking, because at the time of Rene Descartes, that's when clocks were just starting to come into the, into the world. And people were so enthusiastic about this mechanism that told time. Uh, and Rene Descartes looked up at the stars and said, yeah, it looks, looks like a giant clock. You can tell time by the movement of the planets and the stars. So that got Newton uh, into thinking about it. Newton, um, trying to understand the movements of the planet, created a new mathematics, which most people didn't know. He created calculus. Uh, in order to uh, um, plot and map the data about the movement of the planets. Uh, and he, he puts the data in about the movements, and guess what? He, he comes up with an ability to pre accurately predict the movements of the planets in the solar system. Uh, and science uh, is always the hallmark of science is predictability, because it says if you know something about it, then you can predict what's going to happen. So prediction is a reflection of knowledge. So his ability to predict the movements of the universe made this a very exciting discovery. But what was more important is Isaac Newton didn't put any invisible forces into his equations. He put the mass of a planet, the size, how fast it was moving in its orbit, the directions and vectors of its orbits and all that. He put all the mechanical, physical data in. And when he solved the equation, he was able to predict the movement of the universe, which basically said, oh, you can understand how the universe works without putting God into it. It's like a giant machine, and that everything in the universe, in the universe is a machine, and it's a, it's a mechanism. And uh, so this led to an interesting situation, because with this science, uh, the, the new field of physics did not step on the toes of the church, because... They made an agreement, essentially. Science said, look, we just study the physical world because they already felt like, oh, you can understand the universe without bringing the spirit and stuff in it. So they said, look, we study just the physical, mechanistic universe. We leave the energy and the invisible forces and spirit. We leave that to the church, metaphysics. So the church dabbles in metaphysics and science dabbles in physics, which says mechanical. Well, that becomes issue uh, when you try to say, well, how does the human body work? And the first premise is this part of the universe and everything in the universe is mechanical so that if you take the human body apart piece by piece and study the pieces you'll understand how the human body works and then you'll be able to predict just like Isaac Newton by understanding the movement of the, of the planets was able to predict uh, planetary positions in the sky uh, the in a body apart, studying the pieces and then knowing how the pieces work will be able to offer an opportunity to predict how the body works. And if you have a sick body, then you compare it to the healthy body 
and you look at the parts, uh, and then you try to change the parts uh, and adjust the parts, and that led to what we call the pharmaceutical industry. So the pharmaceutical industry is the mechanistic end of medicine that says, uh, well, you're a machine, you're made out of parts, and we sell parts. <laughs> That's what the me- mechanistic view of the universe is all about. So allopathic conventional medicine is based on, on the physical nature of the body, that genes are the physical foundation of where life comes from and that we talk about uh, all our traits and emotions behaviors all linked to our genes and and i go well this is a very interesting science and for the longest time it really seemed correct matter of fact i was even teaching it in, in medical school uh to my students and uh what's really interesting about all this science is w- what does it mean to us as individual people on this planet and this is the the hard problem and here's what it means is this a i'm a mechanism made out of uh proteins and dna and b the dna is a programming device that programs my traits and my characteristics and then the next understanding is but a (laughs) as far as we know we didn't pick the genes we came with b if you don't like the traits you have you can't change the genes and all of a sudden, see, that means I'm a victim. I'm a victim of heredity. If there's diabetes or Alzheimer's or cancer in my family, mechanistically, through the genes, this, this information will come into my life and will shape the rest of my life uh, uh, in some form of chronic disease, as most people are afraid of. And why is it a victim? Because uh, according to the science, you have no influence over the activity of your genes. Your genes activate you. You don't activate the genes. So that's why the power went to the genes. And as a result, the mechanistic view of the world that we live in is the one that most people practice, and that is you have something wrong with your machine, and it's just like going to uh, an auto repair place. You drive your body into this place. They open up the hood, look in your body, take all the statistics, read it, and say, you need these parts. And then they give you a prescription, and then you take your body out. And the whole idea is this is supposed to heal us. Unfortunately, over the years, it's now recognized that uh, conventional medicine is one of the leading causes of death. For example, even the American Medical Association uh, reported in its own journal that it was the third leading cause of death in the United States. Well, obviously, we have to stop and say, well, there, are, there must be something they're missing. <laughs> Some understanding has been left out of this picture. Well, that brings in the new science, but it's an old science. It's an old science for this reason. It's called vitalism. Vitalism, life, uh, vital, life. It's, it's a living thing, okay? It's not a mechanistic thing. It's an energy. It's a spirit. Uh, um, it's um, invisible fields, as physicists would say. And why this is relevant is the world was held to be mechanistic all the way up until 1925. In 1925, the entire foundation of physics was altered for a very simple thing. And the reason was this, is that in 1925 they found out that when you looked inside the atom, yes, there were electrons, protons, and neutrons, but when you looked inside of them, there wasn't anything physical. It was all energy. 
And then all of a sudden they started to recognize, oh my God, the whole universe is made out of energy. What you think is physical is an illusion of energy. And why this became relevant is because in a mechanistic world, energy feels what's going on around you is not relevant. You're a machine. We only look at the physical. The new science, based on quantum physics, brings vitalism back to the reality that invisible energy forces are running through the nervous system, through our body, connecting ourselves, driving us, including consciousness and spirit and elements of the field that run through us. And it turns out that the new science is not genetic control, which means control by genes, but the new science, just actually recently named in the 1990s, the new science is called epigenetic control, and it sounds almost the same, except for that little epi in the front. And I say, well, what's the difference? Genetic control? Control by genes. Epi means above. So when I say epigenetic control, I'm saying control above the genes. And all of a sudden it says, wait, the genes don't control it? And the answer is no. What controls it is our mind, our consciousness, our perceptions, our beliefs, our emotions, our attitudes. They control our biology and our genetics. And why is this so important? Because the story of genetics, which is allopathic medicine, you're a victim. Uh, genes control you. But the new science of epigenetics is, no, no, you're a master because it's how you respond to the environment and the environment you live in and what you do in that environment that controls your biology. And the significance is, well, you're the one change your environment. You're the one that can change your perceptions. You can change your life and you will change your genes. And all of a sudden it's like, oh my God, we're not victims. We are masters. But we didn't know it. And our belief system, which is perception, has been beliefs of disempowerment and limiting and self-sabotaging beliefs that we've acquired. And we are so profoundly powerful and yet we believe ourselves not to be. And since perception is what drives the biology, the perception of being vulnerable generates vulnerability. <laughs> the, the perception of being powerless generates being powerless. And this is a wake-up call because just as quantum physics shook Newtonian physics and said that whole belief that everything is mechanistic went out the window and everything came in, it was all energetic. Biology is going through a phase like this right now where the current beliefs that were just a mechanism made out of chemicals and genes is giving way to an understanding that it's an energy-driven system. It's driven by information from the environment, and it's invisible information. Uh, and it's interesting because in the world of science and physics, we say, well, what is that energy, that invisible information? What do you call that uh, that's driving everything? And the physics scientists would say, yes, that's called the field. The field is the invisible energy matrix in which we are living. And I go, okay, well, what is the field? Give me a definition. I say, oh, a field, this is a lovely, a field, invisible moving forces that shape the physical world. Oh, very interesting. The word spirit from a long time ago is invisible moving forces that shape and influence the physical world. Oh and all of a sudden God. it's like, I'm I full circle. <laughs> it came full circle. That the invisible forces, you want to be scientific, it's called the field. The field is affecting you. And, I, and if you want to go back, they didn't know the science, but they knew the effect, so they gave the effect the name spirituality, but there was no science. Now there's science, but they call it field, but field, by definition, is everything that's spiritualist, 
we're referring to back in those days. And, and we're beginning to realize that there's a thing such as spirituality and there's things such as consciousness. And these invisible energy fields are the primary shapers of our biology. In fact, in quantum physics, Albert Einstein's quote, very famous, is the field, the invisible energy, the field is the sole governing agency of the particle. Particles matter. And what he was saying is the invisible energy field is the sole governing agency of matter. And it's like, yeah, well, it used to be called spirit. <laughs> Same one, different name. But it brings back the lessons and the knowledge of the past as not mythology, understanding that we can apply today but use it from a scientific context. And with that, and with that knowledge of epigenetics, you can change your life. You can absolutely change your genetics. And in eight hours of meditation, uh, they looked at two genes that were responsible for inflammation causing irritation. And in eight hours of meditation, uh, meditators were able to turn off those two genes just by meditating. And it's like, oh, wait a minute. Or well, I love this one. Um, uh, Dean Orner, she does research in, in the States. He's a physician. has some wonderful, wonderful papers on cardiovascular disease. But this was a study on prostate cancer. And what did he do is he, um, he split his cancer patients, his prostate cancer patients, into two groups. One of them got the conventional pharmaceutical medical uh, treatment, just like anybody else would get. The other group didn't get any treatment at all. The other group actually uh, was taught how to have a better, how to uh, uh, meditate and some stress reduction techniques. And they followed the two groups for 90 days. Before the 90 days, they read the genetic readout of everybody in the, in the experiment. And then 90 days later, they read the genetic readout again. And here's, listen to this. These people didn't take the medication or anything. 500 genes changed their function in 90 days just by changing lifestyle. And the primary gene changes were all changes that uh, uh, were canceling the effect of the prostate cancer. It's phenomenal. When you think about what Angelina Jolie does and a lot of other women are doing because they're told to have the gene for breast cancer. Uh, you know, it's interesting. Let's say, here's what's interesting. So I say, okay, look, there's a breast cancer gene. They call it, let me, let me first clear this up. The first thing, no gene causes cancer. That's given. A gene does not cause, okay? Uh, the reason is, if, if there was a gene like that, anybody who ever had the gene would have cancer, they would die anyway. But here's the fact. Let's talk about the BRCA1 breast cancer gene. Um, I say, yeah, well, uh, yeah, people with that gene get cancer. I go, yeah, how many? I say, oh, 50%. Okay, 50% of the people with this gene get the cancer, and that's what we talk about. I really want to talk about this. 50% of the people with the gene don't get the cancer. <laughs> that's the question. Yes. Uh, and the fact is we never talk about them. But now we're beginning to know. And, and there's been a study from the American Psychological Association that shows up to 90% of doctor visits are due to stress. That is ultimately the cause. It turns out less than 5%, this is a real numbers, less than 5% of illness on this planet is due to genetics. Style. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've been looking at the mechanism, uh, disregarding you as a person and what you think and what you do, because it's only genes that control you. So we never talk about lifestyle. <clears throat> you know, we never talk about your emotions and beliefs and your attitudes. Why? Because in a gene-controlled world, that's irrelevant. Now it turns out, oh, my God, it's what controls the genes. You see, but if that's true, then by controlling my emotions or my perceptions and changing the way I look at the world, <clears throat> then I change my genetics. The answer is, yeah, as much as in eight hours uh, with just the meditation, for example, or 90 days, 500 genes. And why is that relevant? It's the realization that we are truly powerful to control our life, our health, and our biology. I, that was a long-winded answer, Cindy. <laughs> but, but you know um, what? It, 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 it just explains to people because nobody realizes that these two philosophies have been going for so long and that they, you know, they exist today and that um, you know, there's a polarization there. But you know what really got me was when you talked about the Inquisition and and how um, people were basically being gagged back there because of spirituality, um, things like that. We now have an inquisition happening. I don't know if it's happening around the world, but it's happening in Australia. And the inquisition is basically if you do not have the research and the facts and you, oh, don't, yeah. you aren't of part of the medical fraternity, then if you speak <laughs> out about um, vaccination, diet, um, vitamins and minerals, medicine, drugs, I don't know, you will be gagged. We've got a committee <laughs> here in Australia yeah, yeah. called HCCC. <laughs> you know, it's, a, it was, it's just funny because uh, this is how funny it is. You see, when the church was running the civilization and they were the truth provider, they also told the government, when, when somebody got arrested for being a heretic, they didn't, they didn't get arrested by the church. They got arrested by the government. Because the church made the rules and the government followed the rules, right? Mm. And, and, and I love it because then the practitioners of the church wore black coats. And I say, in today's world, science is our truth provider. We say if it's true or not based, is it scientific or not scientific? And I go, interesting. Science is the truth provider and, and its deliverers wear the white coats. <laughs> and, and what's really interesting is it's the exact same situation. It's a new church. And they make up the rules, and the government then enforces the rules of this organization. And it's, it's just an unfortunate situation because they don't want people outside of the box. <laughs> uh, because the, there's too much money inside the box. If you think of how much money the drug companies make, they're the richest country, companies in the entire world. <laughs> and they have people believing that you cannot have a life without these drugs. And if you start to show that you could have a life without the drugs, well, I'll go back historically, there were the Gnostics. These were people that left the church because they realized they don't need the church to talk to God. They could do it themselves. And what the church took, killed them all. <laughs> they killed millions of them. Why? Step outside the box. <laughs> it's not good for business. And medicine today is pharmaceutical. It's not the medical doctors. It's the pharmaceutical industry. Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, political yeah, medicine, I guess, isn't control. it? It's, yeah, and we're, and we're finding it more and more that that's what's happening. <laughs> um, also, uh, another thing that I wanted to ask you about um, was y- you go so far as to say that, uh, that the science of epigenetics, once we, we start to talk about the science of epigenetics, and 
I remember um, listening to you recently, like it could have been in the last year, and you were talking about there's a new science called behavioural epigenetics. And yes. you basically say that um, when this becomes basic education, this will change civilization. How so? Absolutely. You see, we moved from genetics where genes controlled us to epigenetics. And then I say, yeah, but what was the move? Well, it was found out that genes don't make decisions. That's what the first thing. Genes don't even have an on and off. Uh, a gene is a blueprint, so people should know this. A gene is a molecular blueprint on how to make a protein. It's exactly a, blu a blueprint. And why is that relevant? Because if I go to uh, uh, an architect and she's working on a blueprint, I say, is your blueprint on or off? And she would look at me like, what are you, crazy? It's a blueprint. It's no on or off. And I go, precisely. Genes have no on or off, okay? Uh, and that now we say, well, what turns them on? Well, they started to follow back, and they went to the cell membrane like I did. Uh, I, went to, <laughs> I did this in 1970, and this is like now what they're doing in 1990. Uh, and 2000, they're doing this research. And they go up to the cell membrane, and they say, yeah, oh, my God, chemicals from the environment control the genes. It's like... Well, in a part, yeah, that's absolutely true. But what you left out is that according to the new understanding about how proteins work, which are the driving force of the biology, uh, proteins are, are, are not influenced by conventional Newtonian physics. They're influenced by quantum physics. And why is that relevant? It says, well, then the drive force that is driving the biology is not primarily the physical chemical signals of a mechanical world. You see, the chemical signals fit the mechanical story. That's cool. Okay, we're just not focusing on the gene. Now we're focusing on the chemical signal. And I go, that's still mechanical. They haven't gotten into the real nature, which is just evolving, that it's influenced by energy and vibration more than it is by chemistry. And that means invisible forces are more influential in shaping our biology. I say, well, give me an example of invisible force. I go... Thought. <laughs> Thought is a force. It changes the biology. It's a field. It sets up a field and the cells respond to the field. They read these vibrations and control themselves. Well, that's all of a sudden the separation that says before this, oh, epigenetics, we're, we're going to give the drug companies the opportunity to make drugs to control epigenetics, which is where they want to go. It's just moving you know, the, the spectrum to some other market. The reality is the real science is, no, it's not the chemicals that are influential, it's the invisible forces that are influential. And when you understand that, then all of a sudden, things that have been left out of medicine for 200 years, the mind <laughs> has been left out of medicine. Uh, I, when I was at Stanford and I was writing a scientific paper, I actually used the word mind in my discussion and my colleagues had a conniption. They they got they got crazed that you can't use the word mind. This is a scientific paper, and I had to take the mind out of the paper because that's not conventional science. And now there's a new epigenetics that says, wait, it's your responses to life. It's your life experiences. It's how you perceive life. Really. Uh, what's controlling your genetics. Yeah, but I say, well, your perceptions are not chemical. Your perceptions are energy. Your responses to life are converted by your nervous system into energy. That's, nerves send energy. They don't send chemicals. Uh, and all of a sudden we start to say, wait, the body is an electric machine. Well, yeah, that, that's been known for years, but suppressed. The pharmaceutical industry that says, we make money if you think the body is made out of chemicals, and we sell you chemicals. But we can't sell energy, can't put in a capsule, can't sell it as tablets. 
And at some point they realize, oh my God, if energy is really the source of healing, then who needs a pharmaceutical company? And, and, and all of a sudden you realize the tenacious hold that pharmaceutical do not want you to take the power back over your life because there's no business for them. And, and being the most profitable companies in the world, the vision, the specter of not, not selling drugs is not in their worldview. And with all the money they have, just like the church, they bought the government, and then they made the rules, and then the government police come out and enforce them. Uh, hey, we're back in the days of the Inquisition, as you said a long time ago. Boy, am I long-winded. You know, that happens after 10 o'clock here, so. Yeah, yeah. No, you, you're not. You, you're just, like, what happens to me, though, you say one thing, and then I go, okay, what about this, and what about that? So I have, like, have a million questions going on in my yeah. mind, but we're, 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 we're moving absolutely beautifully. So, all right, so I have a question about this perception. And, yes. and how it affects our, our genes. So two people um, see the same event or have something happen to them that's very similar. One has the programming, I guess it is, to perceive it as something horrible and nasty and they have a story about it for the rest of their lives and you know, life is not great for them. Whereas the other one sees it very differently and their story is vastly different. In actual fact, it builds them... Um, to greater heights and they, you know, you know, they don't have sabotaging behaviors. What, what I want to know is, because I see this all the time, how do we reprogram these limiting and self-sabotaging behaviors? Um, you know, how, how does someone reprogram? So, cause then they'll reprogram the blueprint, won't they? And then who knows what can happen to them? So, what's happening there? Look, why yeah. does one person see it as one thing and, yeah. Big question. Uh, the, the, the perceptions we have are like uh, glasses with color filters on them. And it's interesting because in my lectures I used to show people a slide and, and uh, handed out two sets of glasses, one with red lenses and one with green lenses. And I randomly just handed them out and people didn't really notice that uh, you know, the, they were different. Uh, and then I, I put up a slide with the image on it, and then the second slide says, I, you know, I live in love or I live in fear, based on the image, okay? And so uh, the joke part is I say, okay, I turn on the slide. I, ha I ask them to put the glasses on, turn on the slide, and then I, I ask the crowd, I say, is this a picture of love or is it a picture of fear? And the fun part is they start yelling out, fear, love, love, fear. And it's like, and all of a sudden you realize, well, wait. What are you looking at? <laughs> you know, one group is yelling out the picture is love. The other group is yelling out the picture is fear. And the difference is this. With one set of green glasses, you see some images that, look, that are different than those that are wearing the red glasses on the very same slide. And the point about it was this, is the way you look at the world is like those filters. And the filters you have in front of your eyes are based on your perceptions and your programming, the way you were brought up. And the issue is why this is unfortunate is because um, when you look through the filters, you see what the filters show you. As you said, some people see life as a wonderful, beautiful thing, and they have this great thing, and their neighbor right next to them thinks, oh, my God, the world's falling apart, and I'm going to die, and I got cancer. And it's like their neighbors watching the, you know, the same world responding to the same world. So we now recognize, A, the way we see the world is based on, on the perceptions that we acquire in the first seven years of our lives. That's programming. 
Uh, and it's interesting because there's a movie called The Matrix, <laughs> and, and, and it's about, oh, we've all been programmed, and they say, you know, you could take uh, the way into the movie was, you could either take the blue pill and go back into the program, and life will be just the way it always was, or you can take the red pill and get out of the program. Well, what's real interesting about it is that movie is found in the science fiction department in the video store, but the truth is it's actually a documentary. We've actually been programmed. And the program is what shapes our lives, not our wishes and our desires. And the significance is because there are two parts to the mind, and there's the subconscious and the conscious. They have different functions, but they learn in different ways. So we're going to get to the crux of the question right here, and that is this. The, the two parts of the mind is the conscious mind, which is the seat of our personal identity, our uniqueness, our, our spirit, our source. That's the conscious mind, a lobe of tissue right behind your forehead, prefrontal cortex primarily. And the rest of the brain was there before the prefrontal cortex where consciousness comes from. So the rest of the brain, by definition, is essentially what constitutes a subconscious mind. It was there before consciousness. Now, so we have two parts, but here's the important part. The two minds have different functions, and they learn in different ways. And that's where the issues of change run into a problem for this reason. The conscious mind is creative. And why is that so important is because, A, it makes us humans because we just don't respond to the world, but we can create with our experiences. And so the creative mind is the mind that has wishes, desires, and aspirations. That's the one, uh, hey, Cindy, what do you want out of your life? And you tell me, and I go, oh, yeah, that's the creative mind, conscious mind, uh, and that is running your biology with wishes, desires, and aspirations. Then I go, and the other bigger part of the brain called the subconscious, I go, what about that part? And I go, well, that's not very very creative at all, really. It's primarily habits. Uh, it's a very important mind. A lot of people give it a negative thing, and it's like, no, man, without it, you'd be in a lot of trouble. The subconscious mind is the ability to learn from an experience and not have to relearn again. And so you can create a habit. So uh, you can drive the car once you practice learning how to drive the car. You can walk because now it's a habit. You learned once, and then after that, the subconscious, once it learned, was able to manage walking without you thinking about it. So the subconscious is really great because things that we do by repetition, we don't have to relearn all the time. And so I go, okay, so the subconscious mind is habit. Conscious mind is creative. And I go, okay, and this is very important because they learn in different ways. The conscious mind's creative. Yes, listen to this program with you and I, Cindy. Uh, that's a learning event. Uh, read a self-help book. That's a learning event. Go to a lecture, live lecture. That's a learning event. Um, even something like, aha, conscious creative mind learns. Uh, and that's the nature of a creative mind. I go, what about the other mind, subconscious? I go, oh, no, it doesn't learn that way at all. It, has to, it learns in different ways. The first seven years uh, of your life, your subconscious mind was operating at a low EEG frequency called theta, which is hypnosis. And this is a very important part of programming because how many thousands of facts must an infant learn to be part of a family and a community? You had to teach them like school. They never get there. So nature makes the first seven years a hypnosis event so that the child just watches, watches their mother, father, family, community, observes everybody, downloads the behavior, and learns how to be a functional member of the community by playing back the behavior they just worked, watched. So the subconscious mind, first way it learns is hypnosis. Uh, and, the, and the first programs that went in are programs not of your wishes and desires, but they're programs 
that you acquire how to be a, a functional member of a family and a community by downloading the behaviors of others. So your fundamental programs, your subconscious, not even yours. Uh, and I say, well, after that seven-year period, how does the subconscious mind learn? I go, oh, yeah, repetition. How many times you said A, B, C, D before you could get the Z? Uh, you know, the times table. <laughs> uh, anything that we had to memorize is like we had to repeat it and repeat it, and then we learned it. So the second way the con- subconscious mind learns, first way is hypnosis. Second way is um, through a process of habituation, repetition. You have to repeat something. It has to be a process. Uh, you have to do some event. Uh, a sticky note on the refrigerator is like a wish. That's not a process, and that's why they don't really work very well. So uh, you have to do a process. That's the second primary way. The third way is that um, uh, you can activate something like super learning. And super learning, if you've ever seen somebody who's a super learner read a book, they read a book by moving their finger down straight down the middle of the page. And as fast as they move the finger down, they read the page. So they're sweeping the page like in a second or two. They can read a book by turning the pages. One, boom, boom. That's super learning. If you engage that process, you can also use it to download behavior, which is really wonderful because super learning processes allow the downloading of new behaviors in a very short time. Habituation is a time thing. Uh, you you got to repeat it and repeat it and repeat it. It will, it will become so. Um, super learning, you can change beliefs in 15, 20 minutes, a uh, uh, belief that you had your whole life. So uh, this is the third way. It's new. It's sometimes called, some of them are called energy psychology. Some are called belief change modifications. Uh, and these are processes that allow a very fast download. Those are the three primary ways. Being mindful is a way, but it's also like habituation for a simple reason. If you're being mindful, then you're observing yourself and correcting your, you know, like a like a uh, a person uh, steering a ship. You correct the course by every time you catch yourself doing, oh, I shouldn't have said that or something, and change it around. Then you're just like the captain. You're moving the ship consciously in different directions. Being mindful. Uh, allows you to keep correcting repetitive negative behaviors because every time you're mindful and you catch it, you're, by definition, creating a new habit, which will cancel the old behavior. Uh, so mindfulness is, is really a good way. Uh, the most, uh, one of the most toxic, uh, in a sense, hard ways of learning but profoundly fast is a, a life experience that is so traumatizing. It's, some, you know, it's like almost end-of-life experience. It shows, so shocks you that uh, you can change the program virtually instantaneously. Those are the ways of doing it. The problem that most people have is they think if I educate the conscious mind, the subconscious mind will follow along. So if I read the self-help book or I go to the lecture and I learn that, then I will be reprogramming my subconscious. I go, no, see, that's how the conscious mind learns creatively. Subconscious mind learns by that repetition or these special processes. So uh, reading a self-help book, that's not a repetition. That's just reading a book. You educate the conscious mind very quickly. Problem? Almost all of us have super-educated conscious minds, but our subconscious minds are still in the more primitive downloaded programs that we got from childhood. And, and, and here's the problem that some people have. Is talking to ourselves by saying, I will change this program, I will talk to myself, and give myself a good talking to. And, and uh, it's kind of fun because in the lecture I say, yeah, well, who are you talking to? He said, well, I'm talking to my subconscious mind. And I say, yeah, but the subconscious mind's like a, a tape player. 
uh, consider this, uh, the, an old-fashioned tape player. You push play, the tape is playing, the program's going, and then I say, go, okay, now talk to the subconscious mind and see how long it's going to take to change the tape. And the answer is, it'll never change the tape. And I go, that's the frustration that people end up with because they catch themselves and then say, but yeah, but this is not what I wanted, and I'm so frustrated because I wanted to change that. And here I am catching myself, and I go, actually, catching yourself is really good because that's the first step in creating a habit. Every time you catch yourself with a negative thing, you say, stop. This way, Re voice it. A new. This is what I want. This is not what I want. This is what I want. By doing that, you're actually doing what? Unconsciously creating a new habit. And you catch yourself and stop it, mm -hmm. uh, you are doing a repetition. And the more repetitions you do, at some point you'll realize you won't be doing those things anymore because the brain would have learned that every time you do this, you stop it. So the brain learns and says, well, then don't do it. <laughs> and then new habit has happened. Which is, you know, what, what um, I'm all about, you know, like um, my company is called Changing Habits. And I find some people are able to change the habits really, you know, easily and, and they seem to grasp it. And, I, and my thought was always, well, it's knowledge because when you've got knowledge, it gives you power. And if you act on that knowledge, then it enables you to make those changes. Because this is the way I think. I think, okay, well, I know about the multinationals in the food industry. I'm not willing to support them. That's why I won't buy junk food whereas somebody else um you know because they're so in a habit of you know dropping on at um, mcdonald's or hungry jack and they continue to do that that's a and habit <laughs> it, it, and it is a habit so i'm like going well what is it that's going to even though they catch themselves driving into mcdonald's <laughs> what is it stops them before they do that because you know I realize catching yourself is, is a good start. But if you well, that's really important. And really what's very important, because a lot of people, and this includes me, in the old days, let's say I say, okay, you know, I'm not going to eat donuts. <laughs> and then I find myself eating a donut. And then I get mad at myself. Like, oh, you stupid idiot, you're eating a donut. We, you know, it's like, why are you eating a donut? We're not going to eat the donut. But actually, you know, every time I had that argument, I always finished the donut anyway, which is always a joke. Uh, but, but then I started to realize, oh, my goodness. You know, the subconscious mind, if I was going to relate it to a, a, a person, I would say it was like a precocious five-year-old. And, and the relevance about that is this. If you have a five-year-old and you, you want that person to do something, Yelling at them is the, like the last thing in the whole world that will help that individual, you know, change. It's loving them and appreciating them. That's when I realized, oh my God, rather than being upset that that damn donut was in my hand, it was a moment of decision that said, okay, oh look, stop. You see what you're doing? Take this donut, throw it away. Don't, don't finish it. Uh, and by doing that and congratulating myself for what? I caught myself. <laughs> In the old days, I would have had the donut down before I even knew I had it. Here, but I'm catching myself, so it's like good subconscious. <laughs> there you go. And, 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 and rewarding it. It's an amazing difference on the trainability of the subconscious mind. Uh, treat it like a five-year-old and reward it uh, for, for being uh, attentive. Not for forgetting that you shouldn't have done the donut, but being attentive enough to say, hey, we're eating a donut. <laughs> and that way gives you an opportunity to reprogram by repetition. And, and when you do it with kindness, it works much faster as well. And that's one of the things that, that like, I, I, I think you say in your book, um, The Honeymoon Effect, 
is the importance um, of I love myself as a belief. So you, know, you had just mentioned that, you know, it's about love, not reprimanding yourself, but rather the loving yourself. And then I, I, my thoughts are, well, if you, you do really love yourself and you have absolute um, respect for your, your body, then you will not give it the foods that will affect the genes that will turn them on to create problems. Uh, you know, so can you talk about that? Because you talk about that. I'm pretty sure it's in the honeymoon effect, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, uh, uh, okay. So, so let, let rephrase the question. So, because uh, uh, we were talking and there was dialogue, and I go, "What's exactly the question?" You know me; I can't even answer the question. Short, yeah. but uh, <laughs> all right. Well, so um, tell me the importance of "I love myself" as a belief uh, oh, in changing uh, okay, a habit. Okay. Now, let me put it back. And here's how the story that becomes important. Uh, when, when I work with groups and we do um, uh, some belief change modifications and different programs, um, one of the things that we we ask the people at muscle test for uh, is a, a question to see if their subconscious is in agreement with it. Uh, and the question is, as we just said, I love myself. Interesting fact, in every time we've done this, more than 80% and usually 90% of the people in the room will not test positive for that belief. Uh, And the significance is that when we were very young and we were programmed, we were always criticized. That was the way parents uh, try to get kids to change their behavior, criticize them. You know, that's not good enough. You don't deserve that. Who do you think you are? You're not good at this or that. Uh, And parents criticizing in an effort to think, well, if they're critical, the child will adjust the behavior. But if the child's under seven, they just record it. Not good enough, not lovable, not smart, not deserving, not healthy, whatever. Uh, and, and these um, um, become the subconscious programs. The fact that the subconscious, in scientific fact, the subconscious runs our cognitive behavior 95% of the time. And this is profoundly important because it's the conscious that has your wishes and desires. It's the subconscious that has been primarily programmed by other people's behavior. Uh, and, and the reason is very simple is that when the conscious mind is busy being in, in thinking, when the conscious mind's thinking, by definition, it's not paying attention to what's immediately going on in front of it. And that's when we shift into the subconscious. Well, it turns out only about 5% of the day uh, is our conscious mind focused on where we are. 95% of the day it's thinking. And that means 95% of the day we are running these subconscious programs. And then you go back and say 80 to 90% of the people are running programs that are what? Not lovable, not deserving, not worthy, whatever these things are. And why is that relevant? Because if you play a program like that, you unconsciously manifest life experiences that represent the program. And so then you look at most people's lives and you realize they're not really happy. (laughs) And the reason is this, is because they have great wishes and desires. Yeah, that's the conscious mind. But 95% of their behavior is being controlled by programs of of less than worthy, less than lovable. And all these, I say, why why is that relevant? It says 95% of the day you are sabotaging the wishes and desires that you hold in your conscious mind with the negative programming that you got in your subconscious mind. And so that's why people are so f***ed because uh, they know what they want. They know where they want. You know, I want love. I want health. I want a great job, blah, 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 whatever it is. And then they, they realize, but as they go through life, it's so such a struggle to get there. And then 
we then blame the universe. It's like, oh my, it's not in my fate to be successful. It's not a, you know, the universe is against me. And I say, oh my God, this is what the problem is. The problem is um, that perception is due to the fact that 95% of the day they're operating from subconscious, which means below the level of conscious, meaning that 95% of the day we're we're playing programs that don't even conform to our wishes and desires and our life becomes uh, is coming from those programs and since psychologists told us 70 percent or more of these programs are negative disempowering self-sabotaging then you have to realize oh my god how do we get the hell out of this thing and, and uh, you know i know we're running out of time on this but I, then i could bring in uh, that story about uh, you know the matrix i say yeah take the blue pill go back into the program or take the red pill and get out uh, and nobody really said well what would life be really like if i took the red pill and then i go interesting point of science which is the basis of the new book the honeymoon effect interesting point of science is that when you fall in love deeply in love like just you know you just fell head over heels in love it's the one time in your life that you become mindful without even knowing it. You keep your conscious mind present right up front. Uh, because obviously the first thing is, reason is, well, if you just fell in love, then whatever you wanted is now in front of your face. So having your mind travel would be, you know, silly at this moment when everything you wanted is right there. So the conscious mind stays present. I go, well, what is the significance? I say, well, when the conscious mind stays present, that's then we're not playing the programs. And I go, yeah, but what is the consequence of when we don't play the programs? And the answer is, that is the period that two people experience when they fall in love, and they call it the equivalent of the honeymoon. It's that juicy, rich life where no matter how life was up to that moment, once they met this person and they that love thing happened, it was heaven on earth. They were healthier, they were happier, life was more beautiful and all that. And I go... Wow, what a coincidence how your life just turned around when you fell in love. And the answer is no, it's not a coincidence. It was because the one time in our lives we didn't default to the subconscious programming that has been sabotaging us. We were at that moment creating lives based on wishes and desires. I say, well, what happens when two people are creating solely from their desires? I say, well, they make heaven on earth. I say, oh, you know what? For the programming, we'd all be there. <laughs> and, and, and so your work, Cindy, is so important because by getting people to understand that they've been programmed <clears throat> and offering an opportunity to rewrite the program is the same opportunity that is experienced by a person when they fall in love and their everyday world into heaven on earth. That was the result of operating from wishes and desires rather from the programming that we got in the first seven years of life. So you may have answered this, <laughs> but then how do we do that without change the program? How do we do the? Yeah. Well, the first thing is this: mindfulness is good, but it's very difficult. Mindful is keep your conscious mind present. Don't yep. keep thinking and wandering with your mind, because as long as it's present, then every decision you make is uh, from the conscious mind's wishes and desires. Very difficult to do in this world because it's so busy that your mind is always being forced to think. And so every time it's thinking, you relapse back into the program. So mindfulness is a great idea, but a very difficult one to exercise. Mm -hmm. A simple thing to do uh, is 
using subliminal tapes and put earphones on as you go to bed because every night as you go to bed, you pass through uh, from your EEG, from your awake active EEG levels, which are uh, beta and alpha, uh, you go into delta, which is sleep. But going between beta and alpha to delta, you pass through theta, which is hypnosis. So just as you're starting to go drift off into sleep, your brain is now operating on theta. So if you are listening to uh, self-help tapes, subliminal tapes at this point, the information is going straight into the subconscious mind, just like hypnosis. So it's very easy. Um, do you have yes. them birth? Do you have those tapes um, on did your... When I, first started, I, when I first started, I did, uh, as a matter of fact, the first one was a Louise Hay tape, which I ultimately mm-hmm. ended up uh, working with Louise. But, I mean, when I, when I had that Louise Hay tape, I didn't know her from anybody, but um, I put it on. I have to tell you the truth. It was kind of enjoyable because... Um, as the, the tape starts, the first part is a, a relaxation exercise to get you relaxed, okay? And then it goes into the uh, to the storyline of the tape. What was interesting is I heard the tape the first night all the way through. The second time I played the tape, I heard it through right to the end of the relaxation before the message even started. The third time I put the tape on, I would start to go to, from that point on, I'd go to sleep before the relaxation exercises were even halfway over. So it was kind of fun to uh, put the tape on. It was almost like, oh, go to sleep because of the relaxation. And in that process, I was downloading the messages that uh, changed uh, my life early on, which is one of the first things I did to, to uh, understand how to, to get control back into my life. Mm. You know, at the Uplift Festival, um, Ebert Alexander... Um, spoke and he's doing um, some tapes that um, were all based on OM and the vibrations of healing in great healing areas around the world Um, and look I actually ended up buying those tapes and have been listening to them and uh, they just they give me such peace to listen to them they're they're quite amazing Did, did you I actually never, I never uh, listened to the tapes. I didn't get a copy when I was there. And of course, he was, uh, uh, you know, he had a wonderful story and message to bring to the world, especially as a neurosurgeon. Mm-hmm. Uh, but interesting point is, he was doing, I think, with vibrations and stuff, wasn't it? Is that uh, sound vibrations? Yeah, it was all based on vibrations and vibrations of healing, oh. like the pyramids. Is apparently in every healing area of the world where where great. Um, you know, great, the pyramids were, I think, and um, there was a place in South America. They all had this same vibration, so they used that vibration along with the word OM, and um, it's, it's quite a stunning type And vibration is quantum physics. You see, that's yes. what the quantum physics is all about, energy. And, and so sound energy is a, is a very significant healing energy. So uh, any way that you can bring sensory information in with a message, is a is a way of of changing your system, uh, which is really important because there's so many different ways. There's visual, auditory, uh, the sound and stuff like that. Kinesthetic, touch, massage, uh, these kind of things. All of these are ways of introducing new vibrations, new energy into the body, and, uh, and that's vitalism uh, because those invisible things, such as sound, which are not physical. Um, uh, Sound vibrations, electromagnetic vibrations, uh, uh, all the whole range of, of energy 
uh, all of them, uh, when we bring them into the system, uh, are very significantly influencing the control of our biology because that vibrational information is what is the uh, represents primary environmental signals that influence uh, cell behavior and genetic activity. Well, everybody you know is able to do this because everyone's got iPhones and or smartphones and iPods. They're so easy to do now, and to just just to have that um, beside your bed. So I think that you've given them a really good start for those people that are really stuck in their in their unhealthy habits or their their, re, their programming that just keeps, like Groundhog Day just keeps happening. <laughs> yes. you know, it is like Groundhog Day for these people. They just, they don't know how to make these changes. And my heart actually just aches for them. I, I was speaking to somebody today about it and she just says, I, I go really well, Cindy, and then I just, I just, I fall off the wagon and I, <laughs> yeah. What's really important about this, and this is, a, this is really in part because we brought it up and I really have to mention it again, because that's very discouraging. Falling off the wagon, it's like, oh my God, I fell off the wagon, blah, 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 I can't do it, I'm weak, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, no, 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 wait. You fell off the wagon, which was your point of reference is the moment you realized you fell off the wagon is the moment of choice. Mm. He said, I fell off the wagon. Okay, is that the end of the world? No, because you get back on the wagon <laughs> again. Uh, but people get discouraged and they say, well, I fell off, so forget about it now and all that. And it's like, no, look, it, habits are habits. That's the way they work. They they work on the ability of they do the program without you thinking about it. And, and so uh, you're really up against a, a, a device that is very powerful programs. And, and you don't give up. You encourage the system. You say, okay, fine. Let's get back on. You caught it, right? Did you catch it? Yes or no? And it's like, well, I did. And I, I said, well, how'd you respond? And that was the moment of choice. How'd you respond? And as I said, yelling at yourself, that's unfortunately a very negative consequence because it doesn't help the programming at that point. Congratulating yourself is what helps the program because you said, I, oh, you brought it to my attention. I, you know, that was great <laughs> because in the old days I probably wouldn't have done it without even knowing what I was doing because it would have been so habitual. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, uh, again, I just want people to recognize uh, we're so hard on ourselves when the better way of learning is to be loving. And then, as you brought up and we talked about, it's hard to be loving when 80 or 90% of us don't have a program to love ourselves. And that is always, to me, like the starting point change. If you can get to I love myself, the subsequent changes are so much easier. Mm-hmm. But if you don't love yourself, subsequent changes are more difficult because you started off with a bad program. Because the first one is you to yourself. <laughs> uh, and if, if you can't love this, what you have, it's going to be very, very difficult to make any other changes after that. Because that's like number one. Because you discounted yourself as a as this entity, this creator that you are. I mean, that's what the honeymoon is a symbol of. Uh, when you had that love experience, that wasn't an action; that was a creation. You did that, and you can do it again. And in the mechanics of it, and 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 this is what we strive for. And I really want people to recognize is that well, if eighty to ninety percent of us have some real bad programming about who we are, trying to fix any other issue in our life is really secondary. Mm. One of, 
I have to love myself first. And that is like the, the most important breakthrough download uh, new programming that I think that, that can really be offered to someone. Because if they love themselves, they will unconsciously end up doing everything to support the love for themselves. And to support the vehicle that carries their conscious <laughs> as well. It, you know, it, they just, I, I, look, I love it when I see people finally get it. Bruce, we're, we're um, running out of time and I really want to tell everybody where to find you, wh- about your books. Um, so if ever, anybody wants to go and learn more about what Bruce talks about, and I, I have to tell you, I've been listening to Bruce for years and every time I listen to him, I learn something new. So please go to brucelipton.com. His three books are The Biology of Belief, Spontaneous Evolution, and The Honeymoon Effect. Now, they're in my library, and they're my library keepers, and I'm always referring to them. They're, they're just one of those, those three books that um, really help you in your education. And you did say in the beginning, Bruce, that uh, knowledge is power. And when we act on that knowledge, then... You know, great things happen and of course one of the things that you've taught us is that we've got to love ourselves and then perhaps everything's just going to just fall into place for everybody and catch themselves so Cindy, if we do love ourselves because unconsciously then we want unconsciously we want to take care of ourselves and mm-hmm. and you know as we talked about if you don't love yourself then unconsciously you don't really care and that lack of caring is really where the problems in our lives come from. So, uh, you know, what you're doing, Cindy, is so important and so necessary for the world. And and for those that are listening, uh, just understanding these facts a bit, that your lives are really been programmed and, and, and that the programs are not supporting us, that with knowledge that we've been programmed, then we can do something about it. But most people don't even have a knowledge that they're operating for programs. They think the world's against them, and that's what we need to to bring people to 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 understand the, the nature that we are power, mm. and we can change the lives of our own and for the rest of the world by just what we do. And that's the honeymoon effect. Oh, I love the honeymoon effect. Yeah, <laughs> me too. Me too. <laughs> Look, I just want to let everybody know that, that next month I will be interviewing Dr. Natasha Campbell McBride. Um, just make sure everybody registers for the, this, that, that call. We will um, be sending out reminders. I just, and Dr. Natasha is an author of The GAPS Diet, um, which is the gut and psychology syndrome, but she also likes to call it gut and psychology syndrome. Um, so her son was diagnosed with autism, or oh, sorry, gut and physiology syndrome, so she looks at the psychology and the physiology. So her son was diagnosed with autism and she realised her profession, and she was a medical doctor, um, inadequately equipped to deal with this growing epidemic. So she went back to university to study nutrition and neurology to heal her son. Um, He is an independent adult at university and living a full life without autism. I believe her story is riveting and her message is life-changing. So thank you to everyone from around the world who has contributed to this call and been online to hear the incredible wisdom of one of my greatest mentors, Dr. Bruce Lipton. And I thank you for taking the time out of your day and or night, whatever it is, to improve your knowledge on health and well-being in order to change your life and that of your families, then your friends, community, state, and then a country. We all have a part to play in this change, so be part of the ripple effect. 
that is changing the world. Bye for now. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.